You are listening to Radio Albion. Welcome to another edition of the Orthodox Nationalist. This is Matthew Raphael Johnson, and this should be going out on Wednesday, the 24th of January, 2024. I want to thank everyone who signed up for my Patreon. I have tons of stuff going up on there. I'm also putting up some rough drafts of things that will end up being books or something later on. I'm going to be putting up my paper on uh, uh, Israeli settlements um, <clears throat> with certainly far more detail than, um, you know, things that I could say in a, in, in a lecture. Uh, and, of course, donations and all that are, are not just accepted, but absolutely um, unnecessary. And my friends have been, uh, true friends have been very generous. Now, today... I want to talk about something I have never spoken of before. Something that I'm noticing is becoming very popular, uh, not not philosophically or academically, but um, in you know just on YouTube. There are thousands of videos on this particular topic, Um, a a movement of self-help that claims to be um, in the in the Stoic tradition of of ancient Greece and uh, and part of Rome. Marcus Aurelius uh, in particular, and he is he is probably the most accessible. And of course, since so many of the great Stoic writers um, only exist in fragments today, the Roman Stoics tend to get a lot of uh, a lot of attention. But I'm seeing this, especially among men. Marcus becoming a uh, a role model of sorts. And these books are really more self-help than, than philosophy, but in the Stoic mind, maybe there's, there's a connection there. So, I want to get into what Stoicism actually is, and whether or not this flurry of books and, and lectures are correct is another matter. Um, but most certainly, it is a practical way of life, as Marcus would say. So after Plato's death, within a certain period of time, Platonism split into three factions. The skeptics, the cynics, and later, the stoics. The skeptics denied all socially relevant knowledge, or that there's no foundation for socially relevant knowledge. And the cynics, founded by Diogenes of Sinope, Um, with the lantern that, among other things, mocked the social conventions of the day and actually sought out forms of humiliation to to render themselves immune to the demands of, of society and reputation. Stoicism, in fact, derives from cynicism. 
But Stoicism was founded around 310 BC by Zeno, who was part of the Platonic Academy, the Platonist himself, stressing the unity of goodness without recourse to the forms. He was succeeded by Cleosthenes of Astos and then Chrysippus. Um, and then finally, amongst the Greeks, Panathias uh, of Rhodes was the last leader who died in 109 BC. And it was resurrected, of course, in the, uh, during the Roman Empire. And this is what we call late Stoicism. Um, the Romans are the only ones who have full works. And not just of Stoics, but also of those who are talking about Stoics. Um, so we have to work with fragments, and descriptions made by others, like, like Cicero, who studied philosophy in Athens. Um, and he claimed Stoicism was really the high point of Greek thinking. He never called himself one. But even under the emperors, um, you had um, an advisor to the court of Emperor Augustus, Arius, first century BC, and then, you know, not too long afterwards, Seneca, who was an advisor to Emperor Nero. Epictetus, who was a former slave, was also a prominent Stoic. And as the emperor Domitian expelled all the philosophers in 89 BC, um, he ended up being a huge influence, if not the influence, on Marcus Aurelius, who reigned in Rome from 161 to 180 AD. So, in the most brief sense, Stoicism, especially in its popularized version, is focused on self-control. Self-control against the passions, so as to free reason from their tyranny. Reason is clear thinking. It brings man into contact with Logos, and Logos is an important part of Stoicism. It is a moral doctrine, but it's based on metaphysics and physics. And I want to talk about that because everything else comes from it. Virtue is the aim of action. It consists in a will that is in agreement with the natural order. In order to free oneself from things like envy or, or jealousy, those, that is the goal, really, of the rational and thus happy human life. Now, the ontology and metaphysics of Greek Stoicism is, is open to a lot of debate because, again, we only have fragments and secondary sources. It's claimed, and I think this is false, according to the Stoics, only bodies exist because only bodies can cause motion and act as causes for something else, meaning, of course, that the soul and its functions are bodies, which might also imply that things like Wisdom, thinking, are also bodies. So now we're defining the word body pretty pretty much differently from its conventional usage. Now there are other things. In terms of strict existence, particularity, only bodies exist, but they that there's a number of things of, I think, inferior ontological status. Things that subsist rather than exist. It's almost as if to say that everything is bodily does not imply that everything is material. So there are incorporeal things. Four of them. Time, place, void, and something called lecta. We get the word electionary from it. 
it means something that can be said. Now, the void is a is a primary uh, non-material entity. It is, as Kilomides would say, incorporeal and intangible. It doesn't have a shape. It doesn't take on shape. It is not acted upon in any respect, nor does it act. It is purely receptive. Void is empty space. Clearly essential to the universe because it permits the motion of bodies within it. It can't, therefore, be a material thing. It permits motion. It permits expansion. But it is dependent on bodies. You can't have a void without physical three-dimensional objects. Place is incorporeal in that it receives a body, but it does not act or get acted upon. Place is closely connected to objects. It's, it's a delineation of their borders, their presence, their existence. So place is an occupied space. The void is empty. Time, too, is one of these incorporeals. The past and the future are things that subsist, that the only objective reality is the present, something that Marcus talks about quite a bit. Time is also incorporeal, and really in the same way place is, that it refers to the chronological intervals within which bodies pass. If space is immaterial, then so is time. And finally, lecta. It doesn't normally get an English translation. It's usually a, a called a sayable, something that can be said. The kinds of things that can be uttered in, in language, words, grammar, and all of their functions. It's an expressed thought, and from that comes grammar and logic. It's necessary for knowledge and, of course, for public communication. Language is not the same thing as speech, since language is what is structured and rational. Now, there's a big debate as to the ontological status of the incorporeals. These are mind-independent, that is, they exist objectively, but they're critical to the composition of the universe. They clearly exist. There's something, and something is a technical term. Something, with a capital S, is similar to being. It was called um, by Diogenes, um, not the Diogenes, but the Stoic one, the supreme genus. It comprises everything. Something is a non-something when it is not available to thought. Now, Stoics were nominalists, very vehemently so. They say that universals are figments of the imagination, which, which is a little strange, I think. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but it's a strange idea given the fact that the Stoics talk about human nature all the time. Universals, for the Stoics, they're either quasi-things or no-things. But they subsist, and they can be used in logic, so maybe they're sayable. They're present in logic, but not direct causality. These are attached to rational impressions of the external world. So, incorporeals are predicates, subsisting, for example, on a body of facts and states that we come to from our experience of the material world. Frankly, the incorporeals are necessary for existence to make sense. Now, the core of Stoic metaphysics, 
are the two principles of, and I know you've come across this before, love and strife, or the, or the active and the passive principle, which is a little different from love and strife. There is also prime matter, and within it, four elements, and of course the entire cosmos as a living unit. More than anything else, the active and passive principles form the cosmos. Nothing could exist without them. In fact, the active principle on occasion is termed God, acting on that which is passive, and according to Zeno, that's prime matter, the eternal and formless stuff that physical things are made out of. It's inconceivable because you can't conceive of matter without any qualities, but that's what prime matter is. Aristotle spent quite a bit of time on it. But things exist, physical things exist, because prime matter is informed by the active principle. And that's where objects come from. It is the content to the active principle's form. But of course, active and passive are always mixed. They're blended together. And Marcus Aurelius says, all has changed. What is here today is gone tomorrow. So any kind of real emotional attachments don't make a lot of sense. Now, the vehicle for the active principle is something called pneuma. It's the term starting with a P that means breath. It contains both inward and outward motion in the act of informing matter with form. It passes through all other bodies. So in its outward motion, it gives them their qualities that make them distinct. Its inward motion makes them unified objects. That is a collection. Uh, a unity, despite the fact that there may be many qualities. But the pneuma sustains an object. Holding it together, it's called its tenor. Um, in plants, for example, their pneuma is called their physique. For animals, it's their soul, so to speak. And of course, I have to mention the four well-known elements. Air, water, fire, and earth. And that's the rest of the Stoic universe. The relations among all of these are interesting. The four elements do have qualities. They're not just prime matter. They're not purely passive. You know, water is wet. Fire is hot. But they are not immaterial forms. They're not literally fire or air. And it depends on who you read the active principle sometimes associated with air and fire, while the more passive material world is made up of water and earth. But that was very common in, in Greece and um, in ancient Rome. Sometimes the active principle is referred to as fire or fiery. And pneuma, on occasion, um, sometimes is described as the interaction, a dialectical interaction of, say, hot fire and cold air, which eventually comes to condensation and rarefication, and that alters the quality of objects in this dialectical motion. Now, in terms of the macrocosm, the Stoics argued that the cosmos passes through cycles, in fact, e eternal cycles, periods of fiery chaos, alternating with states of order, that is to say, logos the world that we can understand. The elements 
working through the two principles of active and passive, are constitutive of the cosmos, acting through and within the four incorporeals. Fire eventually cools to form the earth. The dialectic of fire and water create tension. And in the Stoic mind, that tension is just under the surface. They're very concerned with things being here today and gone tomorrow. Stoics divide the world into four forms of being, the categories. You know, Aristotle had ten, they have four. Matter, quality, disposition, and relation. These are actually fairly simple. So any anything is partly comprised of the passive principle, um, but an object can never just be a lump of matter. But unlike prime matter, these things are not entirely undifferentiated. Quality, there's common qualities, there's proper qualities. An aspect of pneuma, it organizes matter so as to give it the properties that we know any object in, in the world. The pneuma serves, serves to arrange through its internal and external motion the underlying matter and make it a unified but distinct object. Of course, the proper quality is a proper name. And objects don't necessarily belong to one category or the other. Now, the secondary um, secondary categories are disposition and relation. Um, squinting, for example, is a disposition of the eye. Uh, the common example is that a fist is a disposition of your hand. And relations are both in time and in space. They're external properties. Something is to the left of something. Something is above something. So... The Stoics end up with all of this, making God someone of a corporeal being, almost identical with the active principle. The eternal reason, purpose of fire, or even Numa itself, with structures, the world, I should say matter, according to its plan. And that's where Logos comes from. It's a body only in a very eccentric sense, since the plan itself is Logos, that can't be a material thing. Not, not crudely so, anyway. It seems that a body doesn't have to be material. Rather, the Stoic God is Logos in the sense that it's imminent within the universe. So, the entire universe, the cosmos, is a living thing. I mean, the word cosmos implies order, implies Logos. God stands to this as the soul stands to the body. It's an intelligent fire, logos. It's like a seed um, that contains everything, all principles and elements that will develop into an orderly universe. It makes sense. So it makes nature and all of its pieces governed by reason. Now, God is not like the, the mythological gods, you know, unpredictable and, and random. No, there is one God. And he is unified, orderly, and rational, at least as far as his relationship to, to the world. Now, those are the pieces of the Stoic universe, and they're all very much interrelated. But this is by far the more obscure aspects of Stoic doctrine. They're known for their ethical theory, their psychological theory. But it seems at this point, 
that Stoics are believe in a, a um, causal determinism. In other words, they see anything that we come across as completely determined by past events. And yet, moral responsibility is critical for the Stoic school. They end up believing that free will and physical determinism don't necessarily have to contradict each other. Logos is something worked out over time. The rational will of God. Sometimes they call it fate. Um, it's a certain ordering of the whole. Things, A set of things succeeds others. And the interconnection becomes inseparable. But they do talk about how these, how causes are inescapable. Cicero goes so far in criticizing that, that if everything is predetermined in a strong sense, then why would we do anything? And he uses the example of, of a doctor. Well, if someone's sick, you don't have to call the doctor if it's determined that he's going to come. What difference does this make? I don't have to do anything. This, of course, implies that all actions are caused from without, not in our power. And uh, this is, you know, the extreme form of determinism. Now, one of the great defenders and systematizers of Stoicism was Chrysippus. And he replies to that ancient argument. You know, Cicero is probably our, our main source for it, although it's much older than he is. Not all events are independent of each other. Some are a part of a chain of causes such that they can never really be separated. It's really one thing, you know, calling the doctor, the doctor showing up, and the patient being treated are all one thing. The doctor won't come unless someone calls. So, of course, it isn't pointless. You do have to call him. Consequences may be predetermined, but only insofar as they are caused by our present action. In other words, one has to act to ensure the proper consequences. Although, of course, they will admit that nothing happens without an antecedent cause, not all antecedent causes are sufficient for bringing about any desired effect. There are certain things that are necessary conditions. He's arguing, of course, that human actions are both causally determined and, at the same time, subject to moral evaluation. And it's very common, and this actually also comes from Cicero, who is a big source as to what Chrysippus was trying to get at here. And I'm not sure if this works or not, but it comes from his analogy of the cylinder and the cone. All right, cylinders and cones, two, spatially speaking, in terms of their shape, they're very different from each other. A cylinder and a cone are on top of a hill. Both of them are given a push, and they begin to move down the hill. Now, the cylinder just rolls in a straight path. The cone, of course, being a cone, it spins. Now, of course, neither movement could ever have occurred without the, the initial push. But the initial push really doesn't have a direct relation to the way each thing moves. It's its own nature as to whether or not it rolls or spins. 
The push is what Cicero would call a proximate cause. It's sufficient for causing motion, but not the type of motion that it has. Now, it's difficult to apply this to human beings. Basically, it comes down to your personality. And there's a lot of examples that they use. You have two men, one's a drunk, the other isn't, and they're both presented with a shot of whiskey. The drunk immediately takes it. That's something like the cylinders rolling and the cone spinning. It's the same thing. They have the same thing in front of their face. They form a mental picture of what's in front of them. They come to a judgment, and like the push, the mere presence of the shot in front of their face, that in and of itself is insufficient to cause the responses. One drinks, the other does not. It's the men's personality. Their, their inner, specific, and particular nature. They either give or withhold their assent to the mental impression, but this impression and judgment is something like drinking is good, it's pleasurable, it's not pleasurable, it's not good, and you either give assent or not to those impressions. So in other words, the personality, our, our personality is what causes things beyond any ex- purely external stimulus. So the agent himself is one of the antecedent causes for our actions, and we are responsible for them. Now, Epictetus, who I've mentioned already, a key player in Roman Stoicism, tries to frame this as something along the lines of autonomy. It's key to the the infamous Stoic impassibility. Since action is determined by our personality, any claim to being autonomous might be an issue because who says that personality is entirely under our control? I mean, we're born in different circumstances and different places. But of course, like all Stoics, his doctrine of autonomy, moral responsibility, is rational and never based on the externals of one's life. Now, he does say that the Stoic path is a hard one. It builds virtue. It overcomes externals, wealth, poverty, sickness, health. These things not necessarily under our control. The genetics, you know. But it's a path. It's a, it's a difficult path. It requires a teacher, as well as a constant self-criticism of our past errors and attachments. It really is a form of asceticism. And we talked about the soul as a body of some kind. If it causes things, then it has to be corporeal, not necessarily in a crude sense. In other words, if the soul were not bodily, then it could not interact with the physical body. But body and soul are in constant contact, and hence constant causality, so therefore the soul has to be corporeal. I'm not so sure that that means physical in the sense that we use the term. It's an eccentric kind of body here. The soul, as we've already mentioned, is part of pneuma, but more rarefied than what we talked about before, more um, refined than the coherence that undergirds solid objects or the pneuma of someone's nature, regulating its activities or qualities, working together to form what it is. Our organs create health together. 
But noma, in the sense of the soul, it's what allows us to take information, perception, from our surroundings, and therefore create the impressions. That, in turn, creates the judgment, and that creates impulse, which is a motivator, uh, the motivating uh, source. So yeah, it's a body, but only of the most eccentric type. Now, the Stoics did have something new. And it's the fact that they reject that everything living has a soul, which is something that Aristotle claimed. Plant life, yeah, is held together in the sense of Numa that we've already mentioned, but they don't have souls. Because a soul is that which perceives and moves itself. The soul, therefore, is defined as that which possesses those two faculties. Things that have a soul are capable, then, of representational and motivational uh, faculties. Impression and impulse, thought and action. But it's only adult men that possess logos, and hence rational. Those in the animal kingdom are not, not irrational, but non-rational. A soul implies the power of assent, which is only found in the rational soul, the will, the ruling part of the soul. Something that permits us to, like the case of the shot, we form an impression and we can criticize. Is this good for me or not? Is this going to be pleasurable or not? And what does that have to do with anything in my life? And therefore comes to an informed judgment. We assent to an impression when we think it's true or, or, or good. But our acts of assent is the foundation of moral responsibility. Now, impressions come from all over the place. Impressions are often immediate. We have no control over it. Virtue is a different story. Our acts of assent are free, even if the impressions might not be. And this, I think answers the determinism argument, as well as the very nature of body in, in the ancient Stoic understanding. Everything is intellectual here. Giving assent to an impression, that's the mental image we have of a decision, that's purely intellectual, like a, an informed opinion. Impulses are can be defined as psychological things. They're events that are the motive for human action. And these are always rational because they're movements of thought towards a goal or something. Ascent is what causes the rational impulse created from an impression. So actions are preceded by the formation of judgment as to whether or not what's in like a shot of whiskey, what's in front of them is appropriate for them. They don't believe in something like cognitive dissonance, um, conflicting, simultaneously conflicting impulses, since reason um, can't contradict itself. Principle of contradiction. Um, contradiction is the affront of against reason. There are no non-rational sources of cognition. Everything's an intellectual assent or rejection. But Plato and Aristotle 
thought that passions can overthrow reason. But that's not the case in the Stoic universe. Everything that we do reflects an assessment of our mind concerning what's proper to do in any circumstance, given the impressions that we have in front of us. So children, of course, are not rational. They're not irrational. But they form impulses without assent, one way or the other, and that's why they're not responsible for their actions. The only difference between rational and non-rational impressions or pictures is that they're formed by rational or non-rational creatures. Therefore, we are only capable of rational impressions, judgments that come from it. Now, what is all this? How, how can we bring all of this together? Zeno argued that our purpose is happiness, which he defined as living in concord, living in agreement. That is to say, living in accordance with reason, because living in conflict does not produce happiness. Now, Cleanthenes, who was a successor of, of Zeno, added the conception that we use today. It's living in agreement with nature. This is this was taken. It was taken by Marcus Aurelius, and it became sort of canonical. Now, this also implies being in agreement with yourself. In other words, a clear conscience, aware of its lack of cognitive dissonance. So the truly happy man does not have any internal divisions. It doesn't have any moral ambiguity and therefore leads a life free of trouble. So it's a life based on a single concordant rationality, coherence, never at odds with itself. Happiness, therefore, is a cognitive state. It has something to do with thought. Living with, with agreement with oneself, we're also living in agreement with nature and the cosmos as a whole. God, as I've already said, is, is um, sometimes they say Zeus as the, as the one God, is the active principle of the universe. It's the corporeal, and I put, have that in quotes, present within the universe. It structures matter according to this logos and all all-encompassing plan. That's, this is what we mean when we talk about living in agreement with something. That's cosmic nature. It requires conforming your own reason to that of the whole, to the logos of the microcosm, to the logos of the macrocosm. And essentially, you'll be thinking the same thoughts that God does. That's what they mean by living in conformity with the will of God. So, to bring the mind into this state, there's only one thing necessary, and that's virtue. That is reason when it comes to perfection. That is to say, in need of nothing else. Diogenes uh, Latrius says, a soul which has been fashioned to achieve consistency in the whole of life. That's what we're talking about here. That's developing our reason to the fullest extent. So, the virtuous man lives a life in accordance with with human nature, not his personality necessarily, but human nature as such, implying that he reproduces the microcosm 
in the microcosm, the condition of the divine, the active principle. So we're living in agreement then with both human nature and logos. The logos is overall, of course. And there's never a contradiction between the two. Therefore, Stoics have always identified virtue as cognitive. It's a, it's a type of knowledge. The common example that, that the literature uses is that courage. Courage is based on the knowledge of what should be feared, what should be avoided, what should be endured. So, But this is an entire body of knowledge. This is why the virtues are essentially all one. If you have one virtue, you possess all of them. It implies an understanding that the impressions have an informed opinion and background from which we make a judgment. Knowledge of what is worthy of us and what is not worthy of being a man. I mean, how could you possibly know what to be, what, what it is that you should fear or not fear without knowing much else about the universe around you? Knowing what things are and their natures. It's a comprehensive knowledge of the world around us. That is both necessary and sufficient to live in agreement with nature and therefore be happy. So now we have two infamous Stoic doctrines that can be difficult to swallow. One of the reasons that Cicero was never a, uh, a Stoic, although he admired them. Number one, our happiness is completely within our power. And number two, that the only thing that we can call good is virtue itself. If acts of ascent are all in our power, virtue is knowledge, which is both necessary and sufficient for our happiness, by definition that means happiness will also be in the agent's power. Now this also means, and this is one of the common statements about the Stoics, that our external world could be any misfortune, any deprivation, any dislocation has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not we're happy and satisfied. So the skeptics, for example, said, yes, this kind of virtue is, is needed, necessary for happiness. It's not sufficient for. Virtue may be sufficient for the minimum of satisfaction, but it can't go any further than that. Some things other than virtue itself, and that by that we mean external goods, will impinge greatly on the nature of happiness. What's good and bad are the virtues, or the lack thereof. You know, the lack thereof, the opposite to the virtues, foolishness, injustice, whatever. Everything else doesn't benefit or harm us. Things, life, health, pleasure, beauty, strength, reputation, nobility, death, pain, disease, poverty, are irrelevant. They're real, of course, but they have no bearing whatsoever on our happiness. It's important that Epictetus was a former slave, and it was in that, in that state of slavery that he, he came to this understanding. And it's also part of why um, Stoicism became popular in the ancient world during times of uncertainty. So here, let me quote Marcus here, much later. 
He said, if you are distressed by anything external to you, the pain that you feel is not due to the thing itself, but your estimation of it. And this, you have the power to revoke at any moment. It's a psychological principle, something that, that comes down to um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Not that I'm endorsing a lot of that, but that's really nothing more than stoic logic. It isn't an object that's causing you pain. It's your reaction to the object that causes pain. Even Aristotle argued that external goods, health and wealth, whatever, at a minimum anyway, are needed for happiness. But these externals are what the Stoics called in indifference. They're indifferent to happiness. So wealth, for example, doesn't benefit us. It doesn't harm us. Uh, in the sense that that never has a life been rendered better or worse by the mere possession of something. Wealth and health and everything else that I've mentioned. Virtue alone benefits and makes our lives rational. Virtue is the only good and therefore is the only thing that can create our happiness and satisfaction. Given our rational nature, it's only reason and the perfection of this reason that is genuinely beneficial. Even being tortured, the virtuous man is not just happy, but maximally happy. He is as happy as he would be before the torture starts. Again, a very common idea. This is actually, you know, mentioned in Cicero. Whatever the indifference might be, you know, in this case, physical pain, that does not bring to bear anything to bear on our happiness. Now, the word indifferent is in quotes. It's a technical term. It's a noun, actually, referring to an object external to us that has no relation to happiness. It's all or nothing. Nothing external, if virtue is present, can take away from happiness. Now, sometimes Epictetus disagrees with this, but occasionally, you know, you had Stoics, minor ones, saying that because of this, there's no point in pursuing anything. Pursuing health, pursuing a living. But it, it's, it's not something that's accepted. It never became a core Stoic idea. Certain indifference are certainly preferred. They have value. They exist according to nature. Um, things that are appropriate to one's proper function, of course they should be selected over their opposites. But this has nothing to do with happiness. This is just a matter of day-to-day life. Of course, the virtuous are going to pursue things like health um, because being healthy rather than sick all the time, while it makes no difference to happiness, we do have roles in society. But it really wasn't until the Roman era that Stoicism became a social doctrine. Well, virtue doesn't imply laziness in terms of these indifference. They make life easier, but not necessarily happier. Now, of course, Epictetus says that no one can ignore these kind of externals. He says externals must be used with care because their usage is not an indifferent matter, yet at the same time with composure and tranquility because the material being used is indifferent. In other words, to recognize something as having like an external, an indifferent, as having no ultimate value does not necessarily imply that 
we should avoid being healthy because that pursuit is according to nature. So an obvious criticism is how could something be indifferent to our happiness and yet it is perfectly rational and according to nature to pursue? Um, and and it's, it's, a, it's a dilemma. Either these things are actually really good and contribute to our happiness or Happiness itself is not the ultimate goal. Now, how do they get out of this? It seems like yet another impasse. We're justified in pursuing health rather than sickness. Not even because health is itself a good, but for finite agents, we don't know future events, selecting these goods or these these um, externals is a responsible way of following the will of God. We can't engage in what we do in the world unless we're healthy. So living in agreement with nature here is something like living in accordance with experience of what happens by nature. Diogenes of Babylon says our purpose can be described as, quote, reasoning well in the selection of things in accordance with nature. The selection of indifference makes does make a positive contribution to our happiness, but the possession does not. The virtuous agent will select health over illness, but he doesn't necessarily act directly for the sake of being healthy. He pursues health on the occasion that it is by nature. Illness is rejecting nature because it represents an imbalance in the composition of the body. Now let me quote Marcus again here. Don't let the true nature of anything elude you. Before long, all existing things will be transformed to rise like smoke or be dispersed in fragments. To move from one unselfish act to another with God in mind. Only there, delight and stillness, when jarred unavoidably by circumstance, Revert at once to yourself and do not lose the rhythm more than you can help. You'll have a better grasp of the harmony of the universe if you keep going back to it. Now, the Greek term, uh, term okion, or oikion, it's something that belongs to us by, you know, as, as a human being, something appropriate to us. Even to the point where, you know, Stoics don't, advocate that we not pursue our own um, our own existence even if it's painful to do that Ever, all creatures not just human beings see that as as, as okion therefore an object of concern all animals are born with self-perception and things of physical interest it avoids things that are directly harmful to its being now, the cynics, I should say, deliberately sought out pain and difficulty. And it's a big difference between the two schools. So Seneca uses the example of a turtle falling on its back. It doesn't matter how little it is, it knows that this is not good for it. Non-rational creatures um, perceive what is needed for their own purposes. Stoics also say that because, like certain animals, we naturally cooperate with one another. That's part of human nature. 
So, for example, um, Cicero says that it can't be consistent for nature both to desire the production of offspring and not to be concerned that that offspring should be loved. That's a, that's a clarification of the Stoic doctrine of impassibility. There are legitimate and proper emotions. Now, passions are a different story. The virtuous man does not feel passions. Pathe, we get the word, you know, pathetic from it. The happy life is free of them. And it's literally apathetic, apathy. Not in the sense that we know it. But that passions that can override reason don't exist in the virtuous man. Because passions have to do with assent. So some Stoics say that that a passion is one of these impulses which is disobedient to reason. We shouldn't give assent to it. It's irrational. It's contrary to nature, therefore. And these passions belong to the will, which is a, you know, a faculty of the soul. All passions are impulses. And they also directly precede any action. So like everything else, all passions are rational impulses. They're created through the exercise of reason, justified through the exercise of reason. And there has to be an act of assent in there. Marcus Aurelius spends a lot of time talking about worrying only what's in your direct control. That's why passions don't have any, any place. They are irrational. Not because they, they arise in the subrational part of the soul, like Plato's appetite, for example. Um, because Stoic, there is no non-rational part to the Stoic soul. It's disobeying logos. The suffering of passion is to under is, is is to undermine logos, the universal law, to be in conflict with nature. It's a what they would call an erratic rather than a smooth flow to the daily events in our life. It is not virtuous. It's its opposite. It's vicious. Put differently, I think. The Stoics will say that a passion is an unformed opinion. You're acting without knowledge. It comes from ascribing ultimate value to an object. And of course the only thing with ultimate value is, is virtue and the law of nature. And the second thing, of course, is that there's a course of action appropriate based on our false ascription of value to something external to us. So the passionate man mistakes something as either good or bad, when in fact it's indifferent. The distress, depression, someone feels learning they have a dread disease is an error. It involves the mind's ascent to the proposition that illness is, of course, present and something bad. Bad meaning that it vitiates your happiness. Disease is not preferred, but that doesn't make it bad. And its presence makes no difference to my happiness. It may make life harder, though. So to be depressed over it involves a cognitive failure. So the actor in this case has incorrectly passed judgment on illness as something uh, fatal to happiness while we're still alive. And of course, that itself leads to anxiety. There are no appropriate reactions to the presence of something that is inherently indifferent. Now, there are four kinds of passions, and they're distinguished by their purpose, what, what they're pursuing. 
So distress is a present bad, like having being diagnosed with a disease. Fear, of course, is putting that into the future. Appetite is a good that we can anticipate in the future. And pleasure is when that good is enjoyed at the moment. But what's common to all of them is the intellectual. There's a cognitive error concerning an indifference value. It is not compatible with living in agreement with nature. Although Marcus Aurelius does say that the errors that stem from anger, uh, if there's a legitimate wrong and injustice there, they're easier to excuse than errors that come from a passionate desire for something. A passion is the opposite of the freedom from the force that external things bring to bear on us. And that's not compatible with passion. Now, I don't want anyone to think that the stoic man is some robotic entity. Passions are directed at things that are indifferent. They're incorrectly judged to be good or bad. A created thing incorrectly judged as good or bad. Now, there are genuine goods out there to virtue, and therefore there should be a certain emotional response to that. Now, given all that, Marcus Aurelius seems to be privileged over everybody else really because he's one of the few that we have full texts, specifically his meditation. He was the last great Stoic. The fact that you could have a former slave and an emperor accepting the same, in fact, even you know one influencing the other, is extraordinary. But he accepted the basic bedrock concepts of the, of the school. Marcus says, there's only two things that should, that should ever concern us. And this is different from, from other Stoics. Acting justly and loving what one possesses. That's one of those appropriate emotions. Now, he defines acting justly a little different. Acting justly is acting for the sake of the community. He talks about the cosmic city. Now, whether or not he means Rome as the social cosmos or, or the entire planet is a different story. And it has no bearing on your state in life, whether you're a beggar or whether you're an emperor, since those external things should have no relation to your happiness. He wants to stress that when you act, being in accordance with nature is in accordance with the human beings around you. We have a duty, a positive duty, to contribute to the welfare of the of the community, welfare of our fellow citizens. And that's a, a political version of the Stoic ideal. And acting unjustly is doing the opposite. So he's talking about, you know, bringing about preferred indifference for the whole. And that, again, makes him different from the Stoics before him, but in his mind, whatever good is enjoyed even by a part of the community benefits everyone. What is advantageous, truly advantageous to one man, can never conflict with what's advantageous to another. In fact, this may be a way to tell what is according to nature and what isn't. 
Let me quote again uh, from Marcus, Meditation, Section 8. Every nature is satisfied with itself when it goes along its way well. And the rational nature goes along its way well when it assents to nothing false or unclear amongst its impressions. When it directs impulses to communal action, when it generates desires and inclination for only those things that are in our power, and when it welcomes everything apportioned to it by a common nature. So in other words, clear thought that directs impulse to the social good, those things that are in our power, those are three things, and they can never be in contradiction to one another. Our rational nature acts properly when it directs its action to these communal goals. It follows from our nature. The communal faculty is the same as our rational one because we are dependent. We are, to some extent, dependent on, dependent on the community, although the older Stoic ideal was to be as self-sufficient as possible. And actually, that's the influence of the, of the cynics. And those two faculties, uh, the, the acting for the community, reason itself, they're both perfected in what we call justice. In fact, Marcus will go so far as to say that the good of a, of a rational creature is this autonomous integration within the community via logos. Things like your position, your health, that can change overnight. This is why Marcus is so focused on take, take an object and try to understand what it is, not in the, in the excited way that we are taught to perceive it, but for what it actually is in and of itself. Things outside of your control can have value, not necessarily directed to happiness. And in fact, error is, I think we've already said, error comes from ascribing an incorrect definition to something that isn't different. We put our entire ego on the line because we want a beautiful woman or we want uh, a certain car that makes us look successful. That's incorrectly understanding. What's here today is going to be gone tomorrow. He has a general deflationary scheme as far as what the nature of certain things that, that command our attention truly are. So, for example, he actually says, talking about sex, he says, sexual intercourse, that it is no more than a friction of a membrane and a spurt of mucus ejected. That's all it is in Marcus. So what is the obsession with it? Why do we, you know, just pour our ego into having regular access to this? That stuff doesn't even have anything to do with sex at all. It's an error. It's, again, another cognitive failure. We think sex is more important than it is. So when you come across something, what is the mechanics of it? And he does this for one indifferent after another. So, of course, he denies that there's any conflict between the good of the man and the good of the whole. The well-being of the whole depends on what happens to each part, which, as an emperor, again, that's a, that's a indifferent, the fact that he was an emperor, that ends up becoming a crushing responsibility. Now, of course, we live in a society with irrational people, and Marcus very famously says, you either teach them, or you put up with them. You have no other choice. What is the point of getting angry? 
What are you getting angry at exactly? What's the mechanics of this? And he goes from indifferent to indifferent. You know, you're a wealthy man. You pour your ego into this wealth. You're one natural disaster or lawsuit or scandal away from poverty. And you're going to die anyway. And all of this is going to be gone. I was going to remember you. So why are you so hung up? That's why suicide, uh, although, although Marcus does allow for suicide under certain conditions, having nothing to do with externals, though, has to do with, you know, you know old age and, and, and whatever. He has a few concepts of it, which is really pretty striking. But um, suicide from some external doesn't make any sense because 10 years from now, we don't even get to remember what that is. Marcus's contribution is that man can't be a man, virtuous or otherwise, without the city. That was not an argument made by the earlier Stoics because they really were concerned with as close to self-sufficiency as possible. And this completes the Stoic cycle of virtue. Its influence has been tremendous ever since Marcus's death. And I hope I've connected the, the physics to the metaphysics to the ethics and what reason and therefore virtue really are in the Stoic mind. Thank you everyone for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.